0: Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright
1: ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahneman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahneman on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas, and today... We're in the consumer product space and talking about this amazing company called Pop. And on the podcast today is their CEO and founder, Adam Baker. Adam, it's so great having you on the podcast. It's great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me, dude. This is so cool. Um, I not only love your company and the products, but I was so excited to meet you because of your background, and I can't wait to unpack that uh, for our audience. But like, we have a lot of entrepreneurs on the on the show talking about a new food bar, a new beverage brand, or, or or new snack food and whatnot. But they didn't come out of like retail, or they didn't come out of like manufacturing. And you did. You came up through like the industry, and so I can't wait to to ask you so many questions about about that because we have a lot of listeners that work for some of the big brands that you worked for, and like they're probably thinking to themselves, like, how do I do that? So anyway, I'm, I'm really excited for today's conversation, um, but let's start with this, Adam. So uh, before we get to your company, Soda Pup, um, talk about your background and, and some of the decisions you made in, in, in making your way through the retail and consumer products world.
0: Well, it's been a long and winding road, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh my first career was as an officer in the Coast Guard. Wow. I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. I got years,
1: <laughs> I got a lot of other things. I didn't I didn't get that one.
0: Five years in the service. It was wonderful time spent. Uh really great and talented people. Uh and I was happy to serve my country. So that's where I started. I love that. When I got out of the service, I went back to school, uh, got an MBA. Uh and then I was fortunate enough to land a job at Nike. And it was a foot in the door job. I actually started in human resources. Wow. That's and interesting. So I did I did human resources. I ran recruiting for the apparel division for a while. I was a human relations uh, specialist, but I really wanted to move over to the product side. And so I was fortunate. I hired a, or I recruited uh, a general manager for the outdoor division, a guy named Gordon McFadden. And shortly after he took the job, I went over and, uh, gave him the plug. You know, I want to be a product line manager. How do I make this move? And uh, Gordy took a chance on me. Wow! So as with uh, so many people's careers, there are a handful of people that have been instrumental in giving you opportunities, giving me opportunities. So Gordy was one of those people. Uh, So I was a product line manager and I worked in the outdoor division. Uh, It was called ACG. Uh, They had a big snowboarding initiative at the time. Uh, and then from there, I moved over to the women's division where I worked on the running category and the tennis category. Um, honestly, I think working on women's product made me a better merchant because wow. I couldn't just rely on my own preferences as a consumer. I had to really understand who I was building product for, which became really instrumental for me uh, later in my career and in this career. Wow. You know, put the consumer first, understand what they need. Then I worked on the kids' business, and then I was recruited for a job at Under Armour when they were a small private company. Um, Small, $200 (laughs) Right,
1: compared to Uh, now. But they were still
0: private. Yep. They were still private. And so, you know, Nike's kind of like a a Harvard MBA. It's an amazing business, strong culture, great process, great systems. So then I went to this... um, you know, I, I think of Under Armour as a startup at, at the time. Uh, they didn't have a lot of systems in process. We needed to build a team. And so I went about building, you know, my job was to build a product strategy and put a team in place and, and develop the systems to to create great product every season. Wow. Um, that was an amazing experience. We IPO'd. It was a blast. Great organization. And I learned entrepreneurship from Kevin Plank. Wow. Amazing. Um, Amazing entrepreneur.
1: Wow. And amazing for those that don't know. I mean, just uh, that, I mean, the Under Armour story is a a great one. And to be a part of that during that time uh, had to be a great learning experience. I thought that was a really interesting point you made earlier about someone taking a chance on you. And I think we all hope for that, right? We all look for that coach or mentor or someone that Can you know make a decision that influences our career, Um, and then oh by the way, it's our opportunity also to turn that back around and be thinking about the next gen, right?
0: Absolutely, that's uh, that's a lot of what I'm doing right now. You know, I'm in a position to bring other people along, give them opportunities. Wow. So it's um, yeah, it's it's remarkable as you go through your career. You go from uh, people taking chances on you to you beginning to take chances on other people and helping them along.
1: It's such a great very feeling rewarding. too. It, it is. Very, it's very so rewarding. great when you see someone, even if it, whether it's referring them to a, a job or, or helping them make a decision around a role. It's so exciting. So, um, so all right, Adam. You spent time at Nike. You, you ended their product line manager. You spent time at Under Armour in the apparel space. You were at Crocs, another <laughs> massive brand, and, and you were in global licensing and product management. E bags and, and the merch space. So lots of great brands. So how did you decide, you know what, I'm going to go start my own? How did that process uh, open up for you?
0: Well, so to be honest with you, I was getting burned out on corporate life. i would worked for large public companies. Uh, a lot of decision-making is driven by short-term decisions, you <laughs> totally. know, driving the stock price versus building long-term uh, help the business. And um, honestly, you know, I'd worked for some amazing entrepreneurs and I just wondered whether I had the right stuff to do it myself. And specifically in the pet space where I had no experience and no contacts, uh, the, the question was, can I create magic? Can I make something from nothing? Can sure. I create something in my mind and bring it to life?
1: So how did you decide the pet industry? So I mean I could I could share the numbers, right? The big market space, a lot of people spending a ton of money in this space. But I'm curious, how did you decide? that was where I'm going to go and start something.
0: Well, so when I went to work at Crocs, it was 2008. It was a big roll of the dice for me. It was the deepest part of the recession. Um, and so my function there was really to help turn the product line around. And, and honestly, you know, the company, the auditing firm issued a going concern against the company in the first two months. I was wow. There. So it was a very dicey. <laughs> <not
1: situation>. good. <laughs> but Crocs is such a great um, brand. I mean, anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah. they've
0: had an amazing rebound, uh, and rightfully so, it's a it's a very unique product. But in any case, during that time, 2008, I noticed the pet industry had grown at a rate of 4%. So when in other industries were kind of crashing and burning, pet was going strong. So I kind of tucked that away in the back of my mind. Um, you know, that's a recession-proof industry. I should take a closer look. Of course, I have three dogs as well. <laughs> no,
1: um, I have three, I
0: got three and then, as well. And then, you know, the other part of it is that you know what drives uh sporting goods brands is emotion. You know, every sure. season there's there's a new football season, a new hockey season, new basketball season. So there's this intense passion that people market around. Well, there's that same intense passion around pets. And you know, you just don't see a lot of pet brands leveraging the emotion of pet um the way that it could be. So I thought that there's a lot of potential uh, from a marketing standpoint as well. Sure. And how you tell it, how you tell a story.
1: Okay, good. So data informed the industry decision and you had pets also. So, Hey, this is a big market. And Oh, by the way, it's like, if I could just make a, if I could just take a small percentage of that, that's a pretty big, big deal. Right. Um, how did you figure out, uh, you know, what products you were going to make and like how to even get started making product?
0: Well, as I said, you know, it's a long and winding road. Right. A lot of people think a lot of people think that Under Armour was an overnight success. What they don't know is that Kevin Plank, uh, you know, he was boxing t-shirts in his grandmother's basement for 14 years. Oh, my God. anybody really was. <laughs> Full stop. Everyone um,
1: Did everyone hear that? 14 years there, boxing t-shirts in the basement before Under Armour became the anything? The,
0: the truth is there is no such thing as an overnight success story. So it's a lot of hard work done out of sight, you know, toiling away. But, sure. um, yeah, so... Um, in my case, as I was preparing to leave Crocs, I signed a licensing deal with a company called Cloudstar, and they owned the slogan Wagmore Bark Less. Oh,
1: I love that.
0: It's a very popular bumper sticker. So I licensed the slogan Wagmore Bark Less, and we wanted to build a lifestyle brand for dog lovers. So we spent about a year building um, t shirts, hats, coffee mugs, collars, leashes, dog beds, dog toys. Right. No sooner had we dropped a whole bunch of money and gone to market when CloudStar, the license store, got acquired, and the new ownership, which was a large private equity firm, said uh, we don't want to license our brand. Right. <laughs> so uh, I was at a real turning point. It's like I didn't want to lose all the money I'd put into it, didn't want to accept defeat. The one thing we had heard over and over again was people loved the dog toys that we had designed um, which we had made in china and so their comment was we love your dog toys we wish they were made in the us so we did a quick pivot and you know a lot of business frankly a lot of startups it, it's a combination of luck and timing sure and uh, i happened to have lunch with a friends who was working on a different project had been at a rubber manufacturing facility and she commented to me that this guy knows a lot about dog toys so I went out to the factory, and uh, turns out this guy had manufactured Kong products, which is a uh, in the I industry. know the Kongs. Yep, <laughs> he manufactured. He and his family had manufactured Kongs for many, many years, and wow. they had recently gotten uh, separation of sorts. And I happened to show up, and he had an empty factory with lots of capacity and a lot of knowledge. And he's a guy that took a chance on me. So wow. here again, wow. you know. Somebody else that thought, okay, you know, maybe there's there's something here, so we launched uh, one product in three sizes and three what was, colors.
1: What was the first product?
0: It was called the Can Toy. It's basically um, it's, I see it, it here really, on your
1: website, right? The Magnum Can durable, Toy.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a durable rubber treat dispenser in the shape of a soda can.
1: Oh, it's a treat dispenser. I see that. Yeah, it comes it in all a lot kinds of, of different thing. colors. It looks like a Coke can. Right. I'm it I is trademarked.
0: It. I love so this. we're not violating really
1: cool. any... Uh, no, I, not to imply you were. Oh, that's really cool. So the treat goes in the middle of the, can, of the plastic can, and then they have to chew it to get the, the bone out. Got it. Very cool. Right.
0: So this is an interesting product. First of all, it's the first product I, I we made. Um, building product in the U.S. is very expensive. The molds are very, very expensive. And so you need a lot of orders or a lot of cash to be o- able to open a new mold. So we had to make ourselves look bigger than we really were. So we blew that out in three different materials. There's a puppy compound, an average chewer compound, and then a super chewer or a power chewer compound for extreme chewers. And then we blew it out in colors, so that it was essentially a key item. It's like a t-shirt that you make in, you know, five, six colors. Sure, absolutely. Like
1: line extension.
0: Yep. Right. So this was the first time I applied my apparel background and my footwear background into dog toys because it hadn't really been done. The second deeper insight is that most dog toys, there's not a lot of um, innovation in dog toys. (laughs) It's it's because the the cost of molds is so high, there's a high barrier to entry. Sure. So the deeper insight for us was don't build toys for dogs. Build dog toys for people. People (laughs) are the ones that are buying So if we can create if we can create objects of desire that resonate with different types of customers, it's a totally different approach to making dog toys. So if you look at our product line, for example, we've built multiple uh, brands or sub brands going after different types of customers. So going back to my Nike days, my Under Armour days, you have to understand who your consumer is. About 40 percent of American households have dogs. So if you do the math, you know that's a lot of people, and they're not all alike. So if you're a suburban mom with, you know, two kids and a family dog, and you want something cute and colorful, you know that's one type of consumer. So <laughs> right. so we did a, so we did a, a, a coffee cup like a Starbucks cup, yep. coffee cup for that type of consumer. For the big dude with tattoos and a pickup truck with a, dude, the a Magnum coming.
1: MKB Magnum sugar skull.
0: Well, we've got a brand called USA Canine, and oh, my leading yeah. toy across everything we make is a grenade—the
1: hand grenade. And yes. everybody
0: told me, everybody told me, don't do a grenade; it's not politically correct. <laughs> right? It's right, a top seller. Like, it is. It's my best-selling SKU. My God, the that we
1: USA do. Canine grenade, durable rubber chew toy and treat dispenser.
0: Right. So the That's insight awesome. there is is that you know not all dog owners are alike. So build products for each one of these consumer types. So what we've done is we've created sub-brands targeting different types of consumers. The other thing that was attractive about the pet industry, uh, was the very broad distribution opportunities. Okay. So obviously dog dog toys are sold in pet, you know, pet specialty, but dog toys are also sold in grocery stores. In mass and
1: club. And I mean,
0: exactly. They're in mass club, they're in hardware, they're in, um, pharmacy. So, you know, I had to make a decision. Do I want to be a brand? You, you can't sell the same thing to everybody. Right. So um, I had to make a decision. Do I want to be one brand and just sell them pet specialty? Or do I want to build related brands? So everything is by Soda Pup. USA K9 buy Soda Pup. Let's kick butt, buy Soda Pup. Industrial dog, buy Soda Pup. Um, and that is a segmentation strategy for distribution, love So that. I got a brand. I got an. I got a brand called Industrial Dog. Everything in the line is inspired by things you'd find in a hardware store. My best-selling product in that line is a pipe wrench. It's a nylon, <laughs> pipe a nylon, dog. I love it. So, and you
1: know, so, so
0: it's so interesting. So we're competing against Nyla Bone and Benebone, yep. and they're making bones. And we're like, well, the world doesn't need another bone. Right. Let's do a pipe wrench. Love it, and,
1: and I so, love the. I love that you're thinking about the consumer. I mean, the end consumer, the shopper, not the dog. I mean, the dog's going to take whatever the you know, the person gives them, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, we make we make wonderfully durable, uh, very safe toys. When I say build things for people, not for dogs, that's not to say we're not concerned about how the product performs for dogs. That's paramount, but we're really targeting our consumer segment, our consumer segments, sure. with the way that we design the product.
1: So, okay, so you decide to start with the the can. Um, treat dispenser, how did you decide, or did you know, when did you know it was going somewhere and like, okay, we actually have something here?
0: Uh, about three years later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, was, I couldn't wait. Was it was going to be three weeks, three months, three years. I didn't know, but, so, okay. What, what happened in that three years?
0: Well, it's a very competitive space. And, you know, I think oftentimes a lot of good ideas fall by the wayside because people don't have the you know, honestly, the financial wherewithal to hang on long enough right. for you to get traction. Or you and get,
1: really, you kind of get burned out, right? I mean, you get burned out or it's not going anywhere and you're not getting the sales. It's expensive. I mean, yeah, you know. I mean,
0: and, and people got to put food on the table. Right. So at some point you get, you know, you've got to, I think every entrepreneur comes to these crossroads. It's like, do I stick with it or You know, right? Do I have to go get a real job? Right. So, so um, you know, we saw you know nice, uh, steady but not explosive growth for for many years, for several years.
1: And so, was there was there a turning point or some a trigger point?
0: There was, and it was directly associated with our assortment. So, you know, one of the dramatic changes. In the industry, and it's not unique to PET, it's across the board, is the growing importance of digital. And then it was just madly accelerated by COVID, um, where more and more people are shopping online. But, you know, totally. So I, I've mentioned that, you know, to open a, a mold in the United States is very expensive. It's, you know, $20,000 or more to open a mold. Um, so you got to sell a lot of product to cover those costs. Totally. Um, in the traditional world, before all the digital selling, um, big retailers like Petco and PetSmart, in a sense, they were market makers. Because in order to open a new mold, you had to land one of those. That's right. The outlets. The, yep. For those retailers. Otherwise, you can't afford to open the mold. Totally. So so in a sense, they were market makers, but they also held the market back. It held back innovation, again, because the cost of opening molds is so high, a high barrier to entry. But things have changed, and there's a lot more digital selling opportunities between Amazon and Chewy.com, and, you know, you've got subscription boxes, and the list goes on and on. So what we did um, was we partnered with a couple of key digital sellers several years ago, and we made a new toy for them every month. And, you know, my my philosophy was I'm not going to make a profit on these orders i'm only going to cover the cost of the mold sure so i gave them irresistible pricing and i retained ownership of the mold and so i made money on subsequent sales got
1: it that's interesting and
0: it was a way for me to you know make a new toy every month so suddenly you know my biggest competitors although they they are much bigger than me revenue wise product wise I've run circles around them. I've got far more, I've got far more American made rubber toys than Kong has.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. And just a a little bit of, um, backstory when, when, for those that haven't manufactured plastic products, uh, we've talked about this a a bit in our, in our previous episodes, but I'll just cover it one more time. In order to make a plastic product, you have to have a mold made. And a mold then allows you to <laughs> make many of the same products over and over and over when you inject the <laughs> the plastic material in that mold. And to do that in the U.S. has traditionally been cost prohibitive. So, in order to, you know, if, if you're going to make a dog toy and sell it for $6, the retailer is going to want it for 3 and your cost to produce, it's got to be less than that, right? So to make any profit. And then you, you think about a mold for one toy costing $20,000 and it's, it's just cost prohibitive for most people without knowing, okay... This store or this retail chain wants, they're, they're ordering 5,000, so I'll at least pay back my investment in the mold. So just a little bit of education on how that works. It is a bit cheaper, uh, a lot cheaper, to do it in china or overseas or a couple other markets where you can make have molds made um and product made and then delivered which is why a lot of of product companies go overseas and so i one of the things that i was going to say is I'm, I'm really impressed that you're able to to solve for that and bring the product back to being made in in the usa
0: yeah you know i can it, it's actually even more difficult than than the picture that you've painted because we were making <laughs> sorry <laughs> because we were making um, durable natural rubber toys. So the cycle time on a rubber toy is about 15 minutes. So you're only getting four cycles an hour, whereas plastic, right. thermoplastics are quite fast, about a minute uh, cycle time. So so the the problem I had to solve for is when you make a, a, a product in Asia. Uh, you might make a two-cavity or a four-cavity mold. It might cost you 4500 bucks. The labor is cheap, 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 um, but you have very long lead times. So by identifying uh, big customers that could give me big POs in exchange for new products every month, I was able to make 16-cavity molds wow. in the United States. Very, very expensive. Uh, in some cases, 24-cavity molds. And then I overcome the higher labor costs because I have high, I have more throughput per cycle. Oh. And so, uh, but there are many other benefits to this as well. So now I've got these molds; they're all high capacity molds, and they're all made in the U.S. on short lead times. So I don't so have to nice. carry mass. So I don't have to carry massive amounts of inventory because I'm not shipping container loads of product from China. Right. So I can. This is a what we've built is a uh, is a just in time. Uh, model you know if i get a big order i can chase that demand within two weeks no and time. deliver
1: yeah which I, mean, I can so go from
0: so a napkin plan. sketch to twenty thousand units in less than six weeks it's amazing
1: which is so great especially right now there's a lot of opportunities in the market with uh product shortages still coming out of covid and and what yeah. i'm sure it's an opportunity for you and your business um
0: Indeed, through, through covid we had no disruption in our supply chain at all whereas many of our uh, larger competitors that are importing were really no doubt,
1: uh, and import. a lot of retailers with empty shelves. Um, yep. It's so fascinating. Uh, so, okay, so you get the initial products going. Um, how did you decide direct to consumer versus retail?
0: Well, we actually didn't make that choice. Uh, we are an omni channel retailer. So, um, you know, our website is one of our best marketing vehicles to show people our line. Um, really the game changer for us was Instagram. Interesting. Okay. Talk about that. Well, it's our number one marketing vehicle because it's not just consumers that are looking at Instagram, but it's retailers as well. Totally. Retailers around the world, in fact. So, um, you know, as we were developing new toys every month, we were posting on Instagram and, you know, over a relatively short period of time, we went from zero to over 30,000 followers on our Instagram feed. Unbelievable. And it was a way to drive people to our website to see what we had. So the reason we maintain a a website is less about um, being a direct-to-consumer, although we are, and that's an important part of our business, but it also introduces a lot of wholesale accounts to us.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I just wrote an article um, two weeks ago on technology trends in retail for 2021. And actually one of the um, areas I covered was the whole idea of social commerce and how it's really blowing up, um, small brands and, and, you know, giving new traction to brands that are new entrants in the market.
0: Um, uh, if I could interject, the other other aspect to this is that the, um, traditionally the pet industry has been uh, driven, um, by a distributor model. So most brands sell to a distributor and then the distributor delivers to smaller retailers once or twice a week. And that's because, No smaller retailers; they don't have room for big bags of dog food. Totally. So um, it's very difficult to make money in the distributor model because you've got more people in the middle. Um, You're selling at deep, you know, you're selling to them at deep discounts. Um, So the other function of our website is we sell to wholesalers direct on our website as well, and we give them a financial incentive when they buy direct. Um, So it's more profitable for us because we. They don't have a distributor in the middle, and it's more profitable for the retailer because they're getting a discount that they might not get from the distributor.
1: Sure. That's pretty awesome. And,
0: and, you know, the unfortunate reality, I wish it were different, but distributors, the backbone of their business is dog food and cat litter and consumables. So if you're in the dog toy business, we're really an afterthought. Um, So most, most distributors don't service a business like mine very well. Interesting.
1: Well, your background's in this space, and so you knew a lot of, about it. Were there any gaps and for you personally as a leader? Like, were there areas that you weren't the expert in where you really had to lean on others to help you navigate?
0: Uh, you know, I'm a jack of all trades and master <laughs> of none. So, um, um, particularly in finance, I have help. Um, I certainly know a fair amount about finance, but for sure, I have a lot of help on the accounting side, sure. the bookkeeping side. Um, you know, on the design side, I'd run product engines for companies. So I was very familiar with developing product, um, the process for it. We have made it much simpler and faster. And, um, you know, a small organization is not nearly as complex as uh, big organizations where you need to sure. sign off. Um, more importantly, what we've done is we've introduced a fashion cycle to a moving category. So we've injected a lot of excitement where, you know, historically things have moved very slowly. For Got example, it. the Kong, that Kong classic toy, which is a great product, nothing against Kong, um, but it's 40 years old. Right. And,
1: <laughs> I think it was one of my first dog toys. So I have to tell you, like, I was thinking about it. We used to put like peanut butter in it and things like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, the other part is I think to be really great at product creation, you have to have a deep understanding of manufacturing sure and, and capability. So, you know, I have spent a fair amount of time in factories and understanding the differences. For example, a nylon toy, a plastic toy, like you were talking about before, the, the, the manufacturing is different. What you can do with your designs is quite different. So I've spent a lot of time, you know, in treat factories, we, we have a line of, of dog treats. I've been in, you know, a lot of time in rubber factories, a lot of time in nylon factories, um, really understanding what the possibilities are. Sure. Because sure. ultimately, you know, particularly coming from a sports background, I'm all about innovation. How do we keep pushing the envelope and bringing new things to market that people have never
1: even contemplated. oh i love that um yeah and for those you can check out uh, the website sodopup.com um, one of the things i thought was interesting is how you laid out your differentiators which i really appreciate because just start thinking about the the pet toy industry and with your focus on durability safety being american made and then the whole giving back and sustainability thing. sustainability right now top priority for millennials for um, a lot of shoppers as well as uh, retailers and so i think really cool that you you're 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 playing that angle, I'll call it, or making sure that's part of your brand story.
0: Yeah, it's not by chance. You know, when we're a small privately held business, so um, I can do what I want as long as I can make ends meet. So, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we've chosen to be a values based organization. I love that. Um, and you know, if you ask consumers what they want, you know, they, they want American made product. So people that can figure out how to give them that product. Uh, will do well in the marketplace. People want things that are safe. Everything they make is FDA compliant. Um, there's a lot of need for help in the pet industry in terms of, you know, dogs that are up for adoption, shelters, humane societies. So we give as generously as we can back to causes like that. I love uh, that. As well as military working dog organizations. So, um, you know, my job or any company's job, any consumer product's uh company's job is to provide the consumer with a wow experience. And so the question is, you know, how do you do that, particularly in a digital environment? But, you know, so we're working hard to tick all the boxes, understand what the consumer wants and figure out a way to get it to them.
1: That's really, really cool. Um, you, you went from big companies to entrepreneur share with our audience, you know, two or three lessons learned that you've, you know, I'd say, experienced or developed over the last number of years since you launched this business for those that are thinking about it? You know, other entrepreneurs out there that are considering launching their own brand.
0: So lessons learned. Um, Well, I think that um, the biggest lesson is uh, entrepreneurship requires a different skill set than doing well in a large organization. So oftentimes in a large organization, the primary skill set is the ability to collaborate, to work with others, of um, systems and process, and and playing nicely, right? Um, and, Good team and player. If you can do that, it, yeah, you have to be a team player, which is great. Um, when you're an entrepreneur, um, you have to you have to know how to roll up your sleeves and figure things out. And there's nobody else there to get it done. There's no one to you know pass the baton to. Sure. A lot of it it is perseverance and resourcefulness. Um, And then I think, you know, at the end of the day, to be successful, you, you just really have to focus deeply on your consumer. And that's the North Star. It's always the North Star. If you're not doing it for the consumer, then you probably shouldn't be spending time on it.
1: I love that. Um, and, and so often it's easy to get hung up in your own product and like innovation and manufacturing and, and lose focus on that. Um, share with our audience where they can find you, find your products, connect with you guys and your brand.
0: Well, you can always find us on SodaPup.com. S-O-D-A-P-U-P. SodaPup.com. That brand name was inspired by the can toy, our first product.
1: Uh, I was wondering uh, um, about that. That's great.
0: Yeah. Uh, so SodaPup.com you can find us on Chewy and Amazon
1: you can find us at independent retailers around the country Um, yeah that's awesome well Adam it has been so great meeting you Um, I can't wait to follow your growth and and your brand's growth I I see a couple products here on the website that I'm going to go find including the soda can Um, and I really appreciate you being on I hope you'll come back on down the road as you continue to grow and uh, I'd love to continue to spotlight your story
0: Excellent. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate the opportunity. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, Connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.